going to start with a story. Some people um, like to close their eyes just to picture what's happening in stories. If you want to do that, feel free. If not, just listen in. It was a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a grey overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth that they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I'd like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them out into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and in silence collected their things, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. And it came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, my sister, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, sister. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocket, but rather than take out that hand... He wouldn't remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I'd been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. So a nice little gentle introduction tonight. Powerful story that we're going to come back to later. We're in the, the penultimate week of our We Believe series based in the text of the ancient Nicene Constantinople Creed. I've been loving it. And the news this week was Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year. In 2013, it was selfie. 2015, it was emoji. And this year, it was post-truth. Post-truth was Oxford's word of the year this year. We've marched past the importance of facts and history and truth in the 21st century. Instead, now how we feel and what we want to hear are how politics are how the media are now addressing us, addressing us the masses. And for us at Central, we've really wanted to speak into that in a post-truth culture. 
What does it mean to follow Jesus when everything feels like it's shaking in our world? And I think it does at times, doesn't it? Our faith in Christ needs to be built on increasingly firm foundations. What we believe is more than just what we feel or what we want to hear. So we've looked back to the creeds to see what seeking truth meant for the early church in the middle of turmoil, in the middle of heresy, arguments about who Jesus was and arguments about what it meant to be church. Asking big questions, building strong foundations. And this week we're talking about forgiveness. So I don't know if it's up on the slide. If not, it's just here. If we can read from here. You can all see that, yeah? We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Let's say that together. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. What does Christianity have to say about forgiveness? What does Christianity have to say about forgiveness? In Hinduism, you have karma and you receive your reward in the next life. In Islam, you hope and you pray that your good deeds have outweighed your bad ones and you'll make it into paradise. In Buddhism, you search for inner peace, often by offering forgiveness to other people. In Judaism, there is a priest that makes an atoning sacrifice for your disobedience. What does the Jesus Christ faith have to say about forgiveness and being right with this God? We're going to read from Luke chapter 23 and verse 32. If you've got your Bibles, it should be up on the screen behind me as well. Luke 23. Just give you a moment to find it. The one person that bought their Bible. (laughs) Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, Since you're under the same sentence... We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is what Christianity has to say about forgiveness. This little world-changing, life-changing story. Jesus Christ, who made claims about being one with the Father, who was one with God, who was God, fastened to a cross with ropes and with nails, nails going right through his hands, nails going right through his heels, 
dying for the sins of the world. This is what Christianity has to say about forgiveness. Crucified by the Roman Empire for upsetting the peace of their colony. Murdered by his own Jewish people for blaspheming the name of God. A slow and a painful and a gruesome death. Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. This is what Christianity has to say about forgiveness. The one true God sent his son on a mission to bring forgiveness into a broken humanity and put Jesus on the cross to purchase freedom for anyone who would trust in the name of Jesus. For anyone who would trust in the name of Jesus. One of the men dying beside him claimed that this man has done nothing wrong and I don't think he knew how true his words were. Jesus' prayer of forgiveness mattered. It mattered more than any prayer that I or you could pray tonight because he was one with the Father and because he lived this life without any sin, the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God was Jesus. This allowed Jesus to pray with the most incredible authority. The only one who could pray with this authority to forgive not just forgiving the men or the man beside him, forgiving generations of disobedience in Israel, forgiving the awful brutality of Rome that he was living in, forgiving Stalin's regime that was to come centuries later, forgiving every murderer, forgiving every, every genuine blasphemer, every adulterer, every liar that had ever been and that was to come. That's the sort of authority that we are talking about here. Even that man from the story, from the concentration camp. This is the scandalous grace of God, given with all the authority of God. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of Christ. He takes the punishment. We receive the inheritance of the righteousness, of the peace, of the joy of the fullness of God. The soldiers also came and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written placard behind his head that said, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. King Jesus, the life bringer dying the death Appropriate for the peasant thief, the peasant murderer. At the heart of Luke's gospel is this picture of Jesus as king. But of this picture of the cross as the cruel mocking of Jesus as king. Now at least he's recognized as their king, but in mockery he, he has a royal cupbearer. But it's a, it's a Roman soldier offering the sour wine, the vinegar wine that the poor people drank. A crown was pierced on his head, but we know it was the wrong sort of crown. A royal placard behind him announcing his kingship is the criminal charge that explains his death. Jesus wasn't alone that day at Calvary. Two others hung beside him, 
Luke says they were criminals, more specifically Matthew, Mark, so they were just ordinary, everyday thieves. King Jesus, King Jesus, who surrounded himself with the weirdos and the prostitutes and the tax collectors in his life, just dying the death of a petty thief. Doesn't make sense, does it really? One of them said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he answered him. I don't know if he looked at him or not. I don't know if he could. Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I hope those words sound as sweet to you today as they must have to the thief hanging, bleeding for the crimes that he'd committed under Roman law. He didn't appeal to the power of Rome to let him down from that cross. He didn't appeal to the authority of the Jewish courts, but to this upside-down king beside him who prayed with the authority, Father, forgive them. And he didn't just receive the offer of paradise from a weak man also heading to his death, but the promise of forgiveness and salvation from a king who is heading towards being enthroned forever and ever at the right hand of the Father. The self-giving, agape love of God, the sacrificial, costing everything, transforming eternity and transforming hearts, forgiveness of God. This is what Christianity has to say about forgiveness. Am I getting my point across this evening? (laughs) Forgiveness of sins, it means the liberation from everything that separates us, everything that divides us from knowing God. The abolition of everything that inhibits a free and a fulfilled and spirit-filled life. The forgiveness of sins. Wow. In the Nicene Creed, it talks about one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And for the early church... There was this exclusive link between the burden of sin and the act of baptism. Forgiveness of sin and the act of baptism. These two things were just inextricably linked in the early church. Baptism united the person with Christ. Or more precisely, it united them with the death of Christ. Which seems like a weird thing to say. But that was so that the person who's baptized dies to their own sinful life. And receives cleansing, hence the big bath that we have over on my right. Receives cleansing and purity and holiness and this thing, righteousness of Christ. Romans 6 is up behind me. says, we were therefore buried through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You too may live a new life. But if you want to get to life, you have to go through the death stage. You have to be united with Jesus in that way. And I always think, if you want to know how important and vital something is, see the lengths that people will go to to get it, even if they get it wrong. What are the lengths that that people will go to to get it? In the Olympics, they give everything in pursuit of, of a medal. 
you know, not just four years, lifetimes of effort, of blood, sweat, tears. In the Tour de France, people go to these crazy extents of training just to grab that yellow jersey. In training, yes, but also in cheating. Not going to mention any names, but you'll know who I'm thinking about. Or do you? No, I meant Lance Armstrong, yeah. Um, In the Middle Ages and onwards, it became very normal for people to excruciatingly wait to be baptized until sometimes the last year, um, not that they could necessarily predict it, but the last year or the last month or the last week or the last day of their lives before they get baptized. So you had to be really good at kind of predicting when you're going to cop it. Because they wanted to get this clean slate with God, and then they wanted to die unblemished before him and walk straight into the afterlife through those pearly gates. Now, just to be clear, this is a gross misunderstanding of Jesus' ongoing active forgiveness, his forgiving power in our lives. There is no need to wait. His freedom is available right now. It doesn't get cancelled out because we enter into a covenant relationship with God. But it does show you, doesn't it, just how important this image of baptism was seen back then. It wasn't just a symbol, but they understood it to be the full transformation that they needed. It was everything, so much that they would wait till the last day. It was everything to them that they could be right with God. That, that was a game changer. That was it. That you could be aligned with him forever. That you could be free. That you could be well and truly forgiven. Do we really crave forgiveness and right, righteousness and rightness with God enough to get it that badly wrong? Do we even realize how much we really need God's forgiveness to exist? I was baptized when I was, I think, around 13, um, mainly for the reason that my big brother got baptized on the same day and I didn't want him to have all the limelight. Um, If he was going to get up there, I was going to be up there with him. It was a very joyful occasion. Um, and in the briefing before we got baptized, I was told to wear whatever I wanted, um, but also that, you know, throughout the years and the tradition of the church, people have often worn white because um, that just represents the purification and the new start, and so I took that very seriously. And um, coming out of the pool, (laughs) not quite sure I've ever been so exposed in my life, Just a small teenage boy in his white Aston Villa shorts. And and that's why in Baptist churches we sometimes have these people called towel bearers. Because they can come and give you your uh, dignity back. Um, There was a point to that story as well. Um, I had an amazing baptism experience. It was really joyful. I, I really did feel this kind of transforming experience. I did really experience God's grace that evening in in Glasgow. But like many others, I found it really hard in and around my baptism. The enemy, I think, spoke lies over me that I wasn't worthy to be baptized, that I was acting, that actually I wasn't a real Christian, I was just playing the game. If you want to know how important something is, 
Just look at the fuss that the enemy kicks up when you get baptized. I know that's been a lot of people's experience. But he hates it when we say, I belong to Jesus and I'm never turning back. And this is my core identity. One of the privileges of leading um, Things at Central is that I've been able to baptize quite a few people, quite a few friends. Um, And when people kind of are thinking about baptism, this is kind of generally how the the initial conversations go. They say, Thomas, I've been thinking about getting baptized for a while now. And I say, oh, that's, that's really cool. How long have you been thinking about it? And they say, well, about 25 years now. I'm just kind of waiting until my great lost, long, long lost Uncle George can come because, you know, I really want him to come and see church and see the evening gathering here at Central. Or other people say, you know, I've been thinking, of get, thinking about getting baptized, but, you know, I'm just waiting and waiting until I hear God speak to me about it being the right time. Or even people come and say, well, you know, I'm just waiting to be baptized because I just want to, you know, show people that I'm reliable around here. I just want to wait till I'm a bit more part of the church, a bit more part of the family. Or even the worst one, I just want to get my life sorted out. I just want to get my, I just want to get my stuff together, as we say, before I can align myself with Jesus. <sighs> what absolute, complete and utter rubbish. <laughs> We have the opportunity to align our lives with Jesus Christ. He doesn't wait for us. He doesn't want us to wait. He wants us to start with where we are right now. To declare to the heavenlies, to declare to the nations our new identity. Why not take that opportunity? It is one of the most amazing ways of experiencing this scandalous grace. The scandalous grace of God. He loves us so much. Don't wait for some moment to come. Whether it's just accepting his forgiveness, whether it's baptism, whether it's both. Come in your brokenness. Come in the middle of your rubbish. Come and align yourself to Jesus. Come and say, I belong to you, Jesus. This is why the church has had all these there's disputes over the centuries about infant baptism, believer's baptism, pre-death baptism. It's been a big deal for a long time because this is the point where you get to say to yourself and to your Lord and, yeah, maybe a few friends as well, that I belong to Jesus. I belong to a new world order where the king has broken in and I'm part of his kingdom. And that's how much it meant to those being baptized in the early church. It was a new world order. They knew for some of them that that was going to be their death sentence when they signed up for baptism. And it should just mean as much today that nothing this world throws at us can separate me, can separate us from God. That I am completely, totally, completely forgiven and made right with God. So I feel like I've woken up every day, basically, for the past six six months to a year. Um, Obviously, Red Rooted first, you know, my app, obviously. And then gone straight to the BBC News app and read the latest outrageous quote from Donald Trump. Anybody else done that? Really, not many of you. Okay. 
don't really relate to you guys very well then. <laughs> and, you know, just to keep in that theme, DJT speaks about forgiveness. He says, I'm not sure I've ever asked God's forgiveness. I don't bring God into that picture. And the quote behind says, why do I have to repent or ask for forgiveness if I'm not making any mistakes? I work hard. I'm an honorable person. Might seem silly. Might seem like actually that's the way that a lot of our world thinks. Depends where you're coming from tonight. For us here, as we look to the Nicene Creed, we can't talk about forgiveness of sins and only focus on forgiveness and just pretend like that big, bad, scary sin word isn't there. Nobody's forcing you to ask for forgiveness. I know a lot of people who think that my Christianity makes absolutely no sense, as they feel no sense of, of regret or sinfulness and, and, and really don't want to apologize for nothing. We're not here to convince you that you are disgustingly sinful, like one of those men normally that stands on the street corners and just hurls vulgar abuse. On what planet is that good news for our world? Most of us know that we're not perfect. And actually in scripture it says that God's spirit will show us how much we are in need of God's forgiveness. We do have a sin problem in this world though. Just look at all the broken relationships and families. Look at all the social fracturing. Look at all the church denominations. Look at all the abuse that happens. Think of the things that you've said that have dishonored your fellow man, woman, we do have a sin problem. We've made ourselves kings and queens of this world and, and gods, and we've wanted to try and prove to each other that we can be successful and that we can be independent and we can do it just fine. One of the thieves on the cross mocked Jesus as he died, and the other shouted, don't you even fear God? Don't you even fear God? And the truth about this post-truth world is that we don't fear God. Nobody believes in sin. You know, we think it's an outdated way of just making people feel guilty so that they'll do what we want. And therefore, there's certainly no need for forgiveness and there's no need for Jesus. The other thief continued, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. And the story didn't finish there for thief number two. He wanted in. He wanted in on God's salvation project for the world. And his future was sealed with the promise from the king. I'll see you in paradise. I'll see you in paradise. Incredible words, even though it sounds a little bit like a, a bad chat-up line. <laughs> Life-changing words. So just to take a second to be clear here, in case I'm not joining up the dots very well, no matter what you have done, the vilest thing, the pettiest thing, the darkest thing, the thing that haunts you every day, Jesus says, I forgive you, I love you, come and live your life with me. You have an opportunity to live your life unafraid, unafraid of the power of guilt or shame without the weightiness of sin, reconcile to your Father, walking 
in your purpose. And this has been made possible through Jesus' death and resurrection. Baptism is the way we respond to Christ's forgiveness and upward call on our lives. And just a really simple question, do you want that? Do you want that reality? You can have it today. There is always this offer, this promise of forgiveness, and there's always more. There is always more of God's heart for us to get to know, to step into as well. God's scandalous grace is available to everybody bar nobody. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. Quite heavy this evening. I'm going to read you the second half of that story. So those of you who were shutting your eyes and imagining it, go back to that place. Don't fall asleep. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, the guard said. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, sister. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but it seemed to me like it was hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to give their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing my tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. Amazing story. This is what Christianity has to say about forgiveness. It's more than just a maths equation. It's the most incredible thing that has ever happened in the history of of everything and anything. And we could take months to even begin to unpack the depth, the wonder, forgiveness, the the freedom that comes with forgiveness. But Jesus gives us very simple principles. Forgiveness comes from God. He initiates it, but it is to be shared with the world. It is impossible to keep forgiveness to yourself. 
Because if you think you've received it, you have to pass it on. And if you refuse to pass it on, you almost certainly haven't received it in full. And Jesus told so many stories about this. Please do go and check them out. He really cared about the people who followed him, understanding that forgiveness is a flow. Forgiveness has to be passed on. Forgiveness is for everyone. It isn't, exclusive. It isn't an exclusive thing in relating to our upwards relationship with God. Even though that's where it starts, it then extends to the one another. Jesus taught us how to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Now, it can be really scary. It can be really, really terrifying thinking about forgiving people that have hurt us. So much is at stake, so much has been poured in, they might have taken so much out of us. You know, we've spent a lot of our lives encouraging one another, having fun with one another, having a great time, but we've also spent a significant amount of time in our lives competing with one another, judging one another, beating each other up with our words, hurting one another. And, you know, the story we read was about physical scars, but we carry a lot of emotional scars as well as some physical scars too. Most of us here have been emotionally battered several points in our lives, if not regularly. Freedom is on offer. Freedom only comes for us through forgiving one another. There are no shortcuts, sadly. To forgive, this guy called Lewis Smead says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that that prisoner was you. Even though forgiveness can be scary, there are a lot of misconceptions around forgiving one another. For example, that forgiveness is only about the other person, that we're fine whether we forgive them or not. That it's about releasing them from what they've done instead of releasing the bitterness in our hearts. There's a misconception that forgiveness condones or approves how you mistreated. But forgiveness doesn't wait for the other to admit what they've done. It doesn't wait for them to apologize about what they did because that day may never come, if we're honest, even though it hurts. That day may never come. You may wait your whole life for that day to hear the word sorry and you may never hear it. And all you've done is allowed that bitterness and that pain and that hurt Just eat a big hole in your heart and in your mind. Forgiveness does not prevent justice from happening. Sometimes you have to forgive someone and they will still go to jail. They will still receive what they are supposed to. Your forgiveness of them doesn't always mean that you have to live with the consequences of what they did. Forgiveness also doesn't mean forgetting. Sometimes forgiveness allows us to establish boundaries between people. You can learn through the forgiving experience. Maybe you think, and you're sat here tonight, maybe you think you don't need to forgive anyone. Maybe you're just good. You kind of had something back in 2002, but it's dealt with, and you're pretty good. Well, firstly, I want to know your secret. (laughs) You're operating at kind of chief freedom in Christ. Well done. You have achieved winning level. But for the rest of us here, maybe some telltale signs about actually people that we need to forgive. 
when you can't think about that person or even that organization without thinking about that thing that they did to you, that pattern of behavior that they have that really affects you in a negative way, or you've shrunk them down to the thing or the pattern of things that they did to you. That's all they are to you now. You don't see them in their humanity. If you keep bringing them up all the time, if you wish that they didn't exist, if you try and forget about them without really dealing with the pain that they've caused you, if you struggle to say or even think kind things about them with other people, these are just really helpful signs, indicators that maybe we need to stand in the forgiving flow of Jesus. Maybe we need to begin the process of forgiveness in Christ. And in a moment, I'm just going to lead us in, in prayer as we f- consider God's forgiveness. And then we're going to partake in communion, this incredible symbol of God's work on the cross. But as we land, and we're going to take some time in prayer properly, as, as we land, know this, that unforgiveness, it will block, it will block your freedom in life. I've got first-hand experience of this. I've taken years and years and years to getting round to a point where I can even consider forgiveness. Total forgiveness, complete Jesus-filled forgiveness is the strongest currency that we have as God's people. It's the most powerful weapon that we carry as his children. It will transform nations. It will transform communities. It will change lives. It will change your life, but it will also change the life of the people that you give it to. Forgiveness allows people to breathe again. Forgiveness allows life to spring up and grow where before the land was not fertile. Forgiveness allows the Holy Spirit to take hold of your life again and use you in just the most incredible ways because God has placed potential, huge potential in every single one of us. And sometimes it does happen like that. And we can forgive people and it's done and wasn't that easy. I can go home and watch Planet Earth 2 on iPlayer. But other times it's often a longer process. And you think you've forgiven someone and you think you're all good and then you're back here again and you're like, oh my goodness, actually the things that he mentioned, I'm completely still in that place. And I need to go round and round again. And that's okay as well. That doesn't mean that you're a failure or you've got it wrong. It just means that you get to learn more about living like Jesus and forgiving people. You celebrate the small victories. And, and the prayer team are around tonight as well and would love to help you pray through forgiveness. We are God's people. And it was us. And it was God's people who stuck Jesus on a cross. And Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. And so there's nothing, there's nothing, and I know there'll be some incredibly painful and sensitive things in this room that we think, really? Really? Forgiveness? There is nothing that has been done to us that we are not set free from and also called to forgive. To free that person, to free ourselves from all bitterness, to love outrageously, to refuse 
to allow anybody to rob ourselves of our joy. To refuse to let people rent free space in our hearts and our minds. We were made. We were made to walk tall. We were made to walk free and love outrageously. And as Jesus took on the sin of the world of that cross, he must have known and he must have been excited about this powerful epidemic of forgiveness that was about to change the world forever. And we can be part of that continuing story as we look to align ourselves with him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we got our act together, and we still haven't, Christ died to set us free from death. The gospel, the good news of God, is the announcement to the world that he's thrown out the scorecard. There is a flow of forgiveness that the Father, forgive them prayer, invites us into. And we have a choice whether you want to dive into that river of forgiveness, into the flow and enjoy the healing and also embrace the pain, or we can stay at a distance. But when you stand at a distance from the flow of forgiveness, we stand at a distance from the person of Jesus as well. Should we pray together? Just leave some space. Just ask God, what's he saying to you? Holy Spirit, come. Come, meet with us. Come and lead us in your way of kindness and peace and freedom. Thank you for the cross, God. Thank you that you have done what nobody else could ever do. Thank you that it's a scandal that we've been invited into freedom. And God, we just start time just now just receiving from you again full forgiveness and for a lot of people it's really helpful just to imagine Jesus arms outstretched hands nailed heels nailed in placard behind crown of thorns behold the Lamb of God who take away the sin of the world. God, we receive your forgiveness again. But we turn back to you and know that you've done it. You've done it once. You've done it for everybody that trusts in your name. And so the stuff that we've done, God, that we think separates us from you, or actively stops us from experiencing fullness in you, we recognize that it doesn't, doesn't get in the way. 
and we claim we claim complete and total relationship with, with the God who created everything. We claim it in the name of Jesus. We claim it by the blood of Jesus. And we claim restoration with our relationship with our Father. And just step back into that right now. Because all the lies that you've spoken to yourself, all the lies that the enemy has spoken over you, not true and not effective either. So some of you might want to just stay in that place, just really receiving forgiveness when you've come from a place where you really feel like you're not worthy and that's been a stumbling block for you relating to God. We're not worthy, but he's done it. And we've received his righteousness. Other people are really just processing forgiving others and stepping into this flow of forgiveness maybe there's been people or as I was saying an organisation or a group of people that have just really come and, and been heavy on your heart as, as we looked at God's word And maybe for some people it's just the first time that you're going to say, actually, God, I forgive them. Just as you've forgiven me, I forgive them. They owe me nothing. And I take them with me to the foot of the cross and I release them. I no longer carry that bitterness and resentment that has been heavy on my heart. Maybe for some people it's again, it's saying it again and just repeating that same prayer again and again. That I belong to Jesus, that I am part of his forgiven family. I've been adopted into his family. And I release that person, that group of people back into God's care and I claim freedom for my own heart and my mind in the name and by the blood of Jesus.